0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books in Literary Studies channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, John Najarian, and today we have the privilege of speaking with Mark Edmondson, university professor and professor of English at the University of Virginia. Mark is the author of more than a dozen books, including Self and Soul, A Defense of Ideals, and the tripartite The Heart of the Humanities, Reading, Writing, Teaching. Today, we'll be talking about his recent book, Song of Ourselves, Walt Whitman and the Fight for Democracy, published by Harvard University Press in 2021. Mark, welcome to the show, and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Always a pleasure to talk about Walt. I wanted to begin by asking, what about our present moment made Walt Whitman a compelling place to turn? Uh, You say in the preface, democracy must also be spiritual. I'm curious what you mean by spiritual aspect of democracy and also why you wanted to write about Walt Whitman right now.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, maybe I should start by talking a little bit about who Walt Whitman was, get get your readers connected to that. Um, And then we can answer that somewhat more advanced question. I think it's a great question. Um, Walt Whitman was, as it were, uh, before he published 1855, Leaves of Grass, he was nobody, right? He hadn't been to Harvard or Yale. He had no education beyond uh, grammar school till at the time, about the time he was nine. Um, and until he was 33, when he wrote and published um, uh, the first edition of Leaves of Grass, he had many and various jobs, you know. He was a typesetter. He was a laborer. Um, he was an editor. Sometimes he wrote for newspapers. And uh, when he was getting ready to write um, the first edition of Leagues of Grass and most saliently Song of Myself. He was uh, framing three room houses in uh, Brooklyn, New York. And at lunch, he would sit down and um, read for his hour, allotted hour or so. And the book that we know he was reading in summer of 54 was um, the book of uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson's essays. And he read, of course, which you know about very well, this fascinating essay on the poet where Emerson effectively says, we don't have an American poetry yet, you know? Um, We haven't taken in the great expense of our nation. We haven't taken in the very multiple kinds of people who live here. There's so much that has been, as he says, so much is unsung, right? And this Emerson knew what he was talking about because he was a poet and a pretty darn good one, but he kept reverting to classical themes and he never could quite write the poetry of the democracy. Right? So it's kind of an outrageous story and you know it very well, but in uh, in 1854, uh, sitting at his lunch break, this absolutely unknown writer, um, known a little bit for his journalism and for a temperance novel that isn't very good, sat down and began to write in his notebook, the notes that would eventually become Song of Myself and the other great, wonderful poems in the 55 version of Leaves of, uh, Leaves of Grass. Um, where did this come from? It is maybe the greatest abiding mystery in all of literature, it really is. Because, you know, people say like, how did Shakespeare write his works? That's a deep abiding question, though I don't think talking about the Earl of Oxford or Bacon or anything takes us any closer to it. It's a wonderful question, like where did that come from? Uh, But Whitman had absolutely no indication that he would write the, uh, the poem of our moment. His background was really strange. He came from a working class family. His father was um, a uh, a Quaker and an intemperate alcoholic, as far as we know, who may have beaten Walt and his brothers and sisters. Some of the brothers and sisters had deep trouble. His brother Eddie was mentally handicapped and if you let him alone, he would just eat every single scrap on the table until he passed out. Walt took good care of him when he lived with him, and eventually Eddie came to live with Walt in, uh, in Camden. He had some brothers who were pretty, uh, pretty pulled together, um, George Washington and Andrew Jackson, patriotic names, uh, but the rest of the family was out there. Um, his mother, Louisa, whom he wrote those beautiful Civil War letters to, was um, very stalwart, very tough, and very loving to Walt. They exchanged beautiful letters, and she kept house well into her 70s and held the family together. I mean, if you compare his background to that of Emerson, who came from learned people, ministers, educated at Harvard, you know, always looked to to produce something marvelous. The fact that Walt could and Emerson, magnificent as the essays are, in a certain sense couldn't, is one of the abiding miracles of literary history, it seems to me. So I'll stop there by way of an introduction. There's so much more to say about him. But uh, I think, you know, talking about basics is good.
0: No, it's a great point. And my, my next question was actually about uh, Emerson and, and, and Walt and what maybe about uh, Walt's background allowed him to, to answer Emerson's call, but maybe that's where we actually should have, should have started.
1: Well, no, that's, that's fine. I mean, Emerson was American literature at that point. Everybody in 1855, though he was past his best work, most of which was published in the 30s and 40s, um, he was like, he was a demigod. And um, the idea that Walt Whitman, no university education, no pedigree, no distinction to speak of, saw, heard a call from Emerson and knew that Emerson couldn't do what it was he was asking us to do or asking someone to do in the poet, and said, yeah, I'll take that. That'll be okay. I can try that. And then he did it. He wrote the poem of American uh, democracy. And then the great part of the story which everybody should know about, I know you do as a student, of, uh, of Whitman and Emerson, when uh, Whitman finished uh, The Leaves of Grass and published it privately, it wasn't sold in bookstores, you could buy it in phrenology shops. Um, And uh, I think it was sold door to door, maybe by Walt, I don't think we're sure. Um, He sent a copy off to Emerson. And Emerson, who received just about every significant book written by anyone because they all wanted the master's endorsement, took it in and read it apparently from cover to cover, and he was stunned. Now, he might've been stunned into jealousy because this is this nobody had done what he so much wanted to do. Come on, Emerson wanted to be a poet more than anything. But rather than that, of course, he wrote him that beautiful letter, I greet you at the beginning of a great career. I find it the best piece of wit and wisdom that America has yet produced. So unselfish, so warm, so generous. They had their tiffs along the way, but, um, Emerson always held Walt in high esteem and defended him against as many detractors. And Walt was always ready to listen to Emerson, though not always to follow his uh, his advice. But that first ex- that first firework from Emerson is maybe one of the best, most generous things in American literature. And it just pays to remember it
0: from time to time. It is such an amazing moment in literary history. Isn't it? Yeah, um, it's crazy. W- why did you want to? write this book, Song of Ourselves, Walt Whitman and the Fight for Democracy today in the early 21st century? Well,
1: um, you know, a couple of reasons. Um, I've been a reader of Walt for 50 years and um, taught him many times as you have. And I found his work both enlivening and mysterious. I would read it aloud to students or read it somewhat aloud to myself. And I would end up saying, this is magnificent poetry. This is really wonderful. But what really exactly does it mean? You know, because although it appears to be available, partly because of the wonderful music, it isn't always. So I wanted to figure out what I could about what was actually going on and what's surely his greatest poem, uh, Song of Myself. The other reason is that it seemed to me that democracy was entering into a period of instability. Um, It was most overt with the election of Trump who, it seemed to me, embodied certain people's hopes, his own included, for one man rule. Um, And one man rule is the end of democracy. And one of the things that it's important to remember is that in the past, democracy lived in Athens for about 50 or 60 years and maybe the Vikings had some version of democracy, but I don't think I would like to have been one of those Viking Democrats very much, kind of dangerous vocation. And it basically disappeared from the earth. And then it was reinvented or restarted by what we call the Founding Fathers in America, beginning in about 1775 and and six. And um, it, uh, after, you know, real trials and tribulations uh, by the time the Civil War took place in uh, 1861, as far as I can see, there was only one real functioning anti and non-aristocratic democracy in the world. And it was the United States of America and it was in bad peril in 1861, right? Um, So I felt that Whitman had wonderful things to say about democracy and democracy's future and also implicitly about the lure of one man rule and aristocracy that we needed to hear right here and now. Um, Among those things, one of the things I thought most important was Whitman's utter insistence on the spiritual dimension of democracy. He felt that the Constitution was wonderful, the Declaration of Independence was wonderful, but those were legalistic and intellectual documents. They were splendid, but they were not enough. You have to have an awareness of the spiritual bond that made all of us comrades together. And that is what he tried to produce as an emotional effect of Song of Myself. And I think. Uh, He did do so, and part of this bond is that no matter how much we disagree, no matter how opposed we appear we are, we are nonetheless brothers and sisters in the great democratic experiment, and if we fail, we fail, we'll revert back to monarchy or aristocracy, and the greatest hope for happiness, the greatest number of people will perish, perish from the earth. I don't think we're on the verge of that now, but it's not an impossible thought anyway, because on a couple of levels, um, there's a tremendous amount of anger out there, tremendous amount of uh, scapegoating and stereotyping the opposition. And then we have seen somebody who embodied many of the qualities of uh, a one-man ruler, the autocrat. And uh, we have seen how amazingly popular that was to a number of our American uh, fellow Americans. 71 million people voted to reinstall the 45th president of the United States. Now, not all of them were voting for autocracy. You know, not all of them were voting for dictatorship. I have friends who voted for Trump, and they just say, you know, I don't like him personally. In fact, he's an abhorrent man. But I disagree, I agree with his policies much more than I do the policies of the other side. And that's that's fine. That's though I think it's extremely ill-advised. But um, I also saw some of the fervor that attends the rise of say a Mussolini attached to Trump. And I saw it on January 6th too. How far this is spread, how deep it goes is a question that no mortal being can answer. But it's definitely worries. It's definitely worrisome. So um, my good friend, Alex Starr an editor, brilliant editor at Ferris uh, Johnson Giroux, uh, read the book and he said, oh, Mark, I liked your book about you and Walt and Donald Trump. And I said, but I don't mention Donald Trump, Alex. And he said, yeah, but you, you don't mention him on every page. You know, he's there. So that was, that was really my purpose is, you know, intellectual curiosity and affection, for Walt, And then also a sense that some kind of injection of Walt's poetic wisdom, we need spiritual democracy as well as legalistic democracy was something that was called for. Now, I have no illusions. This is not going to you know, penetrate the heights of power and transform the thinking of those in the White House. I just have an American senator, who I will not name, read the book, write to me, and say, this is exactly right. I will do my best to put forward these kinds of values you know, <laughs> insofar as it's possible in the U.S. Senate. So things do happen out there. Um, and also, I felt that there's a lot of criticism of Walt out there. And uh, I felt that we might be throwing out you know, baby with bathwater, just to keep the clichés moving. Um, so I wanted to write something that affirmed what was best about um, about Whitman and about his vision. I think it's really it's it has the greatest pragmatic
0: value. It's useful. It's a great response, and and I would say, you know, as having read the book, I can definitely attest that the the urgency of the spiritual aspect of democracy definitely comes through. It, it's. I'm glad about that.
1: Yeah, I really am. Um, I didn't I, I didn't want it to be a book that would, you know, as soon as this historical period passed, people would say, well, that's a period piece. My mentor Harold Bloom used to dismiss anything he didn't like by saying that's a period piece. <laughs> uh, he would never would quote the best line, I think, about a uh, very vital literature because it's by Ezra Pound, whom he detested. But it's it's news that stays news. You know, Walter's news that stays news. And uh, but you sometimes have to point in that direction and say, remember, you know, one more. Um, uh, high-authority quote, Dr. Johnson, we need to be reminded more than we need to be informed. And we need to be reminded of the existence, really our two great poets, um, Whitman and Emily Dickinson. Though Dickinson is somebody that, though I n- know and respect her work, I don't have as deep a feeling for, or as deep a knowledge
0: about, as I believe I have about Walt. You write that song of myself genuinely begins, not with words, but with an image. Can you describe the image briefly and, and also just tell us what was so important about that image at the start of yeah. of
1: Grass? Yeah, the image is a, um, I think the most accurate way to put it is a daguerreotype deg- based upon a photograph. Something No, it's, no, it's an etching based upon a daguerreotype. Something like that. I, I mess these practical things up all the time. Oh, but what it is most importantly is a black and white image of Walt as a young man in his 30s Had a slant, looking very insouciant, looking very independent, um, looking quite self-reliant, looking like somebody who has an American pride, you know, the pride of the American working man. Nobody's gonna tell him what to do, but if you ask him politely for anything, he'll be happy to lend a hand. You know, somebody needs to unload the barge, somebody needs to get the wagon unstuck, that guy will jump forward and do it. he looks very sure of himself and it's not an unerotic photo. What Walt was trying to galvanize certain kinds of response uh, to him. And that was not, I think, far from his intention. Um, I interpret it, and the interpretation, I suppose is contestable as all interpretations are, as a view of who Walt was and is at the beginning of the point. That is, he's a self, do you know what I mean? He is appetitive, desiring, Strong, has a strong biological essence, has a great deal of vitality. You know, he's an American, he's one of the roughs, he's independent. But what he doesn't have, at least I think at the beginning of the poem, is access to his soul. That was a big aspect of his writing in the 1854 notebooks. And he would talk about how. He had these intimations of this part of himself that clearly he had no real prior contact with. And he called that part the soul. And he kept trying to figure out what is the soul. And eventually, in prose, and I think this is, you know, Walter isn't always accurate about his poetry and his prose, and his, pro, his poetry is much preferable to his prose. He said that the soul is full of compassion. It's full of compassion. It loves the people who are around it. It loves the animals and the earth. Very important to Walt. The his connection with the animals and his connection with the, with the earth in general. But also it has pride that is equivalent to its compassion so that it will never kneel, never be subordinated, never be overwhelmed by any authority. And there he's thinking about particularly not only the rich aristocracy kings, and also I think as a kind of correlate of that the soul will never allow somebody else to be dominated or humiliated if it can help it, right? So it's compassionate and feeling, but when it sees somebody up on top, leaning on somebody lower down, the soul goes into some kind of action. Now, what kind of action is kind of interesting? But um, Walt tells a heroic story partway through the poem about the massacre of some Texas Rangers, you know, that that passage. And I puzzled over that for a long time. What's it doing here? They're massacred by Mexican troops. um, And uh, it was a horrible scene. Right. And then there's this crucial line where Walt says not one of them obeyed the command to kneel. You know, that's what an American in Walt's view is. If he is in contact or she is in contact with the soul, somebody who does not kneel. Right, because that's what you do to popes and priests and ministers. That's what you do to kings and aristocrats. We don't kneel. And the corollary, we don't allow others to kneel. Other we do not compel others to kneel before us either. Now that's an interesting principle for all kinds of domestic and foreign policy, and we have not always come through on it. But it's pretty as a metaphorical condensation, compression of a way of life. It's not so bad. You know, no kneeling. Well, that has important religious connotations as well as it has some um, political connotations. And I wanted to like sort of work those out uh, throughout the poem. The second half of the poem, which is very little commented on um, by readers, um, is all about religion and uh, Walt's engagement with it. Um, and uh, he really understood that you don't kneel to kings, but that was pretty easy to figure out. Like,
0: what should your rela- your relationship to religion be? And he spends a lot of time pondering that question. It was quite fascinating. Yeah, I was going to ask about some of those lines. I'm glad you went there. Um, I believe in you, my soul. The other I am must not abase itself to you, and you must not be abased to the other. Um, so I'm, yeah. I'm glad you you went to those discussions of the soul and the self.
1: Good, good, good. Yeah. Well, you're you're there ahead of me. Um, a base is a crucial word in Walt, and you're good to bring it forward. It seems to me, because it is suggestive of exactly what we as democratic Americans do not want to do. Right? We don't want to kneel, and a hero isn't somebody necessarily who fights for his country and wins, or fights for his country and gloriously loses. A hero, in many ways, is someone who does not kneel and does not compel others to uh, others to kneel, um, and so. You know, Walt was looking around at Christianity, which is the dominant religion in America at the time, where a whole lot of kneeling was going on, <laughs> And, and um, he also, though, wanted Americans to be the most religious people in the world. He says this, and I believe it's absolutely true. So what are we gonna do with the past religions? Well, there's a couple of passages later on in the poem, some of them rather, a couple of them, moments of them rather hilarious, where he takes all of the past religious teachers and he says i put them in binders and i leave them on the shelf <laughs> right so he goes through every one of them and he says these are like mother birds who brought little scraps of food to unfledged birds who could not do not have the strength to fly but now we don't need them they brought some spiritual scraps and that was good of them you know muhammad brought spiritual scraps and abraham brought spiritual scraps and the Buddha brought spiritual straps, but now we're ready for something more. So we're gonna put them in binders and put them on the shelf, right? And then he does this other hilarious riff where he is, he is a member of every religion, starting with you know very primitive dancing in front of a cave, right up to kneeling in the pews, um, repudiating your sins. And he makes con- sort of generous fun of them all, you know? The real crux of Walt religion is Jesus and his feelings about Jesus, right? Um, so he starts out with his treatment of Jesus. It's about three quarters of the way through the poem because right? he had to get a lot of work done before he could deal with Jesus. And, and of course, there's the very famous um, uh, scene where he becomes Jesus being crucified on the cross. Right? He said, how could I forget that that happened to me? And then he t- tells the story of how he was crucified as Jesus. Right? Um, and then, Jesus goes into the tomb, and as in the gospel accounts, he is resurrected and he walks out. But he doesn't walk out um, to the applause of his disciples, uh, to the um, uh, joy of Mary and Mary Magdalene, or whoever his um, associates were at the moment. Rather, he walks out and he leads a huge procession of people. All the people of the world are behind him, sharing in the democratic uh, vision, right? And sometimes, He's at the head of the procession, but mostly he drops back and just becomes one of the rest because Jesus preached equality. Jesus preached kindness. Jesus was, in a certain sense, from Walt's point of view, the first Democrat. But there's a certain level of revision going on there in that Jesus is de-divinized. There's no talk about God the Father. There's no talk about heaven. There's no talk about hell. But there is talk about the benevolent Jesus. He calls him... um. The, uh, he, he calls it an unending, an average unending procession. Isn't that a great name for democracy? An average unending procession. It's just too good. And it's so casual and low key. You don't see, as is often the case with Walt, that what he's doing is rather outrageous. You know? he's, if you look at a religion, Christian religion, you can say that um, in the, um, uh, in the um, Hebrew Bible, you're intended to love God. Magnificent. Then along comes Jesus and says, love God with your whole heart, your whole soul, and your whole mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, then along comes the prophet named Walt Whitman, you know, born on Long Island, an American, though we have had American religious geniuses, Mr. Smith of upstate New York was surely one of them. Um, and Walt says, implicitly, because Walt does not polemicize all that much, implicitly, you know, I think we can do without that love God with your whole heart, soul, and mind business. You just love your neighbor as yourself. But, Walt is no atheist, he acknowledges God. He says that he believes in God, he loves God. It's just that he doesn't want to know any more about God than he knows this present day. And that there's nothing more magnificent than your own self and the selves, implicitly, of your fellow Americans. So spend your time drawing on them and if you occasionally need to think about God and His wonders of, and the wonders of his creation, that's, that's fine. But that shouldn't be the center of your spiritual life. Your spiritual life is about the love of comrades, right? So what you're getting is a religion, a spiritual religion of democracy, which is rather amazing. And it's a little hard to detect. I mean, so it took me 50 years to detect it um, because Walt is by and large non polemical He doesn't holler at anybody. When he doesn't like something like aristocracy, he's much more likely to just turn around and walk away from it. His younger contemporary, Mark Twain, did not turn around and walk away from it. Twain hated aristocracy and he pulverized it every chance he got, you know. But Twain was a much in certain ways a more sophisticated, though a great writer, though far less original than Walt. Twain thought that eventually we were going to lose. Eventually we were going to give in to aristocracy and he pokes fantastic fun at it in um huckleberry finn and he goes after it in connecticut Yankee and king arthur's court and in the prince and the pauper and even in joan of arc a novel that you know, how many people are alive have read joan of arc well me because my son was very interested in joan of arc when he was 10 years old and we read the whole darn thing um he really does not like those kingly powers, and he does everything he can to humiliate them by way of that Connecticut Yankee who takes the treasured image of King Arthur and makes him into a dope. Um, Shakespeare has a little bit of this in him, too, and you, you see it in Troilus and Cressida and plays like that, but, uh, but, and, uh, but Twain has it very strong and he's very polemical. Walt would agree with him word for word, but the idea of making fun of aristocrats doesn't interest Walt. What interests him is saying, you know, We've been interested in these people for a long time, but that's over now. Let's get interested in our fellow Americans who do the work every day and who live their lives and are quietly uh, um, heroic. So we don't need to pull down the statue of the king again. We just need to understand that there's lots of meaning and lots of drama and lots of potential literature in um, in the lives of the people who surround
0: us. There's there's sort of a running joke throughout the book about Walt Whitman's complicated relationship with the sun. Uh, you yeah. you write that you write that Whitman sometimes and this is this is a quote from the book finds the sun to be a distressing even inimical force. What was it about the sun that Whitman found distressing or inimical?
1: Yeah, it's a great question, and it, it ties into this stuff about aristocracy and kinship. You know. And I make a big deal really out of a, a very pretty brief passage and one line in particular, dazzling and tremendous how quickly the sunrise would kill me if I did not now and always send sunrise out of myself. I think that, that's a near enough paraphrase. And what he is getting at there, it seems to me, and the, the, the important note is that very rarely will he say anything negative about anyone or anything. So when he does, prick up your ears. Yeah. No? Pick up your ears. There's a point when he's talking about how he would like to go live with the animals and how wonderful they are. But then he also says they don't sit around and whine about their condition, i.e. the way most of many of my contemporaries do. They aren't engaged in making money all the time, i.e. as many of my contemporaries do. He won't do it very much. And when he does, he wants to smuggle it in, but you keep your ears open. So to me, the sun is as it is in, you know, literature and mythology from, you know, probably prior to the Bible, to the present, a sign of unified power, you know? It's a sign of kingship, authority, um, might, Um, and it's exactly what we Americans don't want to be worshiping. We appreciate its existence, but we don't want to become sun worshipers. If you're a sun worshiper, you're on your way to becoming a king worshiper. What do we oppose to the sun? Well, in in the poem, the image that opposes the image of the sun is the image of the grass. Right, And what are we in a democracy? We're all leaves of grass, that's all. You know, every one of us is a leaf of grass and we are more alike than different. But if you put your nose down on the lawn and look at the leaves of grass, you'll see that they are actually rather different one from another the way snowflakes are. And there's room for difference, but basically we are leaves of grass and we're all pretty much equal and we're all pretty much suffer or flourish together. And uh, we all live in nature, we arise from nature, and when we perish, we go back to nature, and that's not the worst thing in the world, right? So rather than being a creature of the sun, Walt suggests, you become a creature of the grass. Now, a lot of people don't like that, and when I talk about it with students, um, they, uh, I say, you want to be a blade of grass? And at first, it sounds really cool. And then I say, yeah, but you know, one blade of grass isn't really that much greater than any other. So if you're feeling pretty ambitious, you might not want to be able to play the grass. And someone's like, yeah, I'm not sure I like that very much. And then I'll say, you know, and it's a very naturalistic image. You know, grass doesn't die and go to heaven. Um, Grass just dies and becomes fertilizer. And so I'll say, yeah, well, I kind of, I do believe in, you know, uh, an afterlife. And if this entails no commitment to an afterlife and Walt's not interested in the afterlife, Um, then I don't think I like it either. And so it's a rich image, but I like it because often in reading Whitman, uh, people, once they get the hang of it, once they get into it, they think they love everything that's in there. But it's a very radically egalitarian poem and not everybody loves it and not everybody should. I have my own reservations about it for sure, Um, but uh, I love it and I want the message in all of its glory to be out there in the world.
0: I love the line very early in the poem about the grass as the uncut hair of graves, yeah. uh, which is another one of those complicated images. When If you ask students, do you want to be the uncut hair of, of a grave? Uh, yes, it,
1: it is very complicated. Um, you know, a lot of the poem is, um, oh, a significant amount is dealing with death and trying to relay our fears of death, right? Because part of the American religion is that it's here, it's now, it's democracy, it's the love of comrades, and it's not later on. So sometimes Walt will say, you know, kind of beautifully eloquent, but not exactly persuasive things about death. You know, so he says, to die is different from anyone, from what anyone supposes, and luckier. Walt, how do you know? (laughs) know? (laughs) But he's so eloquent, you know, and he's so charming. This more should be made of the charm of Walt Whitman. Uh, you know, I find my—I used to find myself nodding my head, but then when I started to look at it with a little bit more of that laser eye that you bring when you're going to write about a poem, I think there are, there are things in here that are a little bit hard to gulp down in one swallow. I love them as I do.
0: I've been thinking as we've been talking a little bit about Leaves of Grass and Song of Myself as an American epic. Um, and this is something that you, you mentioned at one point in the book. You, you compare it briefly to um, ancient epics or, or older yeah. epics like the Iliad or like Paradise Lost. Um, how do you think um, Song of Myself or Leaves of Grass differs from, from those other epics? And, and what yeah. would Whitman trying to do with, with his poem? Well, um, it's, a, it's a great question. Um,
1: you know, pretty much any epic that you read centers on one individual who transforms and often saves an entire culture. That's particularly true, say, of the Aeneid. Um, Somewhat true of of the Iliad. Um, But it's that the central individual, and this is what Milton takes up in Paradise Lost, to one greater man redeem us, restore us and uh, redeem us and restore the blissful sea. And that that one greater man is is the sun. So Walt is that heroic individual who's gonna embody the best of uh, what it is to be a democratic person, but immediately, immediately, a difficulty arises, right? Because this is not about this commitment to democracy, it's not about heroism, it's not about the extraordinary man or the extraordinary woman. It's about uh, all of us being equal. So Walt has this really complicated task. He's got to exalt himself as he does, But he also says, you too are as wonderful as I, if not more so. You know, just, you know, he says a mouse is miracle enough to stagger sextillions of infidels. And he spends time reflecting on what a miracle it is that his thumb closes down on the rest of his hand. I completely agree with him. It is miraculous. The mouse and the thumb are both remarkable. Um, And so he both exalts himself as the representative individual. And he also tries to bring us along. You don't know, you know, effectively he says, you don't know how wonderful you are, but I know, and I'm gonna tell you, and sometimes I'm gonna tell you through the description of me myself, but for the most part, you can just infer your own own wonder. But I think, John, that he spent a lot of time trying to figure out exactly who he was. And you see it at the end of the poem. He tries to end the poem a few times, and it's always unsteady. There's one point where he becomes absolutely un and he talks about how the Efeb, the student of the poem will come along to destroy him, Whitman, his own master. That's so Nietzschean, so Emersonian and so non-Walt. And when I read that, and the, the one interesting thing about um, O. Whitman, um, he seems like he's all over the place to, to first time and second time readers, but he is amazingly self-consistent in my judgment, especially in this, First volume, he knows what he values, he knows what he doesn't value, he knows what he celebrates, he knows what he doesn't denigrate, but he turns away from, right? But a line like that means there's trouble. Trouble Trouble for what? And the trouble was, you know, am I a great poet? Does that put me above other people? And he says it teasingly. He says, I may find myself one of the Supremes. Um, but it's mocking, but it's not mocking, because it's in there. Um, and I think, and we can talk about this at any point that you want to, I think that he doesn't solve the problem of who he is and what his relationship to the reader is in the poem, but he does solve it when he goes off to work in the Civil War hospitals. Then I think he really does come up with an answer to this question, who am I, Walt Whitman? Right? And this is one of the most amazing things that has ever happened from my point of view, right? You take the greatest poet that America has ever produced and probably ever will produce. There are magnificent poets in America. There have been, there will be. Just about all of them, all themselves, either Walt Whitman or Emily Dickinson, but there'll never be another one like him, never. Because he realized with the help of Emerson that there was this completely untilled field called democracy. And if you wrote the poems of democracy, all the literature that had come before would be Irrelevant. One of the things I do, I teach Whitman with Milton's Paradise Lost. And I say, you know, Paradise Lost is the most elusive great poem in history. Right? Every line evokes Greek mythology, Roman mythology, church history, various kinds of contentions within the church. Walt is the least elusive poet who ever lived. I can find maybe two or three allusions in all of Song of Myself. Maybe, maybe. Um, so, you know, the question is... Who was he exactly, right? Who was he? And he didn't know. But then when the Civil War came, right, he went off once to find his brother George who had apparently been wounded. George, uh, rather unwitmanian in the familial sense in that he was an excellent soldier, very pulled together, very successful, prosperous, loved by all. What was loved by all too? People really liked him. They, They stood in some kind of awe of him, but they liked him tremendously. And um, he found George, and he saw that there was a hospital tent nearby, Right, and uh, he saw a pile of arms and legs out there. And anybody who hadn't the depth of Walt's vision or feeling would have been so appalled that I think they would have wept and gone home. Walt stepped into the hospital and tried to help out as well as he could. Now, Clara Barton was working in the same field. Um, It was Fredericksburg Hospital. And uh, she was a nurse, she knew what she was doing. And Walt admitted, I'm not a nurse, and never will be. But he helped out as much as he could, that probably meant carting some, you know, the, the solution to just about every shot and the wound in the limb in the Civil War was cut it off. Um, and so after that, after he made sure that George was okay, um, George just couldn't, he could not figure out how he'd gotten such a brother. You know, George said, you know, we, we read Walt's poems, he's talking about the family, and uh we read Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, like distant ancestor. He said we couldn't make any, we couldn't make anything out of Longfellow, and we couldn't make anything out of Walt. They're just the same to us. We didn't know what the heck they were going on about. But loved Walt a lot. So Walt goes off to Washington, he gets a job as a clerk, and he comes to the hospitals every single day, right? Every day. And he brings little treats, candy, apples, sugar, he brings writing paper and writing pencils. He sits down with the men who are badly wounded, can't write, and he writes letters home for them as they dictate to him. Um, he helps them with their spelling, such as it was at the time. He kind of spelled it the way he wanted to. Um, and uh, he holds their hands when they're very, very sick. You know, A lot of them, just about all of them had diarrhea, many had dysentery. They had no idea what infection was and how you cured it. Um, and uh, he was just, he was present. They called him the old man, old woolly neck. And he spent a lot of time just comforting these young men who were horribly wounded. Some of them did recover and they went home but they went back to their regiments. But on a given day, you could walk into one of the hospital tents in um, Washington, DC, right? Crowded with wounded men. And you would see at the back of the room 10 or 12 guys who could stand up uh, having a game of 20 questions, one of Walt's favorite games, along with the greatest poet that America had, right? Can you imagine any other poet, no matter how large or small, spending two years of life in those horrible hospitals? One of the happiest days of his life, he told his mother. He writes letters to his um, back home to his mother that are very candid, very moving. He says, "I am. Um, I, I gave the boys a great treat today. There was a, a tent full of I think Illinois, Indiana boys, uh, farm boys, mostly, and he came in with two five-gallon vats of ice cream. And they had never seen ice cream. They had heard about it." but they loved it, right? I mean, this is our greatest poet and this is what he did for a couple of years. And so then you ask the question, who was it? Well, he showed us that he was a democratic individual, one of the mass, an everyday person, you know? What concerns the other citizens concerns him. And he showed himself too, I think, because anybody could go to those hospitals for a day to try coming back the second day or the third or the fifth. And the amazing thing he did after the war was over, he stayed because there were a lot of boys who were still hurt, a lot of young men who just couldn't go home. He stayed on um, until they were pretty close to getting cleaned out of there, and then, then he went off and, and rejoined his life and continued to uh, continue to write his poems. Um, not great poems after the Civil War, you know. He finished up with "When Lilacs Last in the Dooryard Bloom," which is a spectacular poem. Um, but he wrote and wrote and wrote, and every, line, every poem that he wrote after that has at least one interesting line in it or two, but he never recaptured the magic that he had in 54 and 55, and occasionally on the way up to 1865, um, he just kind of, it's almost as though he looked back and said, what happened to me, you know, what happened that I had this vision, and he almost tries to explain his poetry, um, explain his vision in the later uh, poems and he has these amazing impulses like he wants to write a poem that is international global in its scope called passage to india and he says passage to india exclamation point then he can't think of a darn thing interesting to say and he just kind of goes <laughs> on and on passage to india but he's trying you know he's trying to expand his circumference and this is still the spirit of uh, spirit of what he eventually ends up uh, in camden old and his health was brilliant as he had as Emerson said of him, he had Buffalo strength, you know, but they eventually, that time the civil war hospitals broke his health. Um, and he had strokes. He had more strokes. He ended up in Camden, uh, living in a pretty ratty, uh, uh house. Oscar Wilde came and visited him twice and Wilde was just shocked at the squalor that Whitman was living in, but to Wilde, well, Whitman was a God and anything he did was, you know, praiseworthy. And he was just delighted. To meet Whitman, but Whitman treated you know Oscar Wilde. He was heard that he was a very successful and notorious person. But he treated him the same as he would you know the kid who came by to bring him his bottle of milk in the morning. Treated everybody good, you know? even though he was pertin a lot of the uh, lot of the time. Um, at the end, and but he was broke. You know, he didn't have much money. So um, every year he would um, hold a session in New York usually, where he would talk about his memories of President Lincoln, right? Um, And it was very catch as catch can, very scattered, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And um, then at the end, the crowd would all get agitated because they wanted him to do the crucial thing, right? They wanted him to read Captain My Captain, right? And I, I don't know if they clapped in unison the way people do now when they want something, but it was clear, you better read Captain, my captain. You know, and Whitman revered Lincoln, right? He revered Lincoln. And he knew about that night pretty intimately because his dear friend, was it a lover, or just a dear friend, we don't really know. Uh, Peter Doyle had actually been there at the theater and Peter told everything he could to Walt about what was, uh, what was happening that night. Um, So he had some stories to tell, but he told them in his kind of rambling, charming way. Then it was time to read Captain, my captain. And uh, he read it, right? And of course, that's the poem that depicts Abraham Lincoln as a sea captain, and the Union, or maybe the totality of the United States, as a ship that needs to be piloted through the storm. And in the end, the captain is on the deck lying uh, cold and dead. Anybody who's seen the uh, movie, Dead Poet Society, and as you probably know, Dead Poet Society has created more English majors than Shakespeare. Um, remembers that as you know, what you say to Robin Williams as a salute, "Oh, Captain, my captain." Well, Walt didn't like the poem. Right? It's very conventional. It's a ballad. It's very well brought off. For somebody who didn't write much conventional poetry, but also it's about the worship of one individual. It's the worship of a son. You know. Um, and so there's stories, however true they are, of Walt coming out after the um, presentation was over, standing in the street near tears saying, I always wanted my poetry to be read by the people and they do not understand it. Um, We're probably getting close to the end of your hour. Is there anything you want us to talk about before we uh, check out?
0: No, I think the only last question I was going to ask was whether you had any work, anything you're working on presently that you wanted to share with us.
1: Uh, Sure. Um, And it's about time I figured out how the heck you talk about this. I have a book coming out from Yale University Press in early 2023 called The Unwelcome Guest, The Super Ego in the Age of the Internet. And one way to think about that book is that it tries... To bring forward, understand, and humorously dispatch the forces that stand in the way of Whitmanian multiple mutual embrace. So, the superego is a concept out of Freud, and uh, it's called the uber ego in Freud. And Freud suggests that there are spirits, which he wouldn't uh, term he wouldn't like, but let's use it, uh, divided in three parts the ego, the id, and the superego. And the id is the seat of the drives and the ego is the seat of ratiocination, reasonableness, thought. And But the superego is another element of the self and that element tends to be judgmental to the point of relative insanity and often cruel and sadistic. Um, I mean, you know, we, we speak of many people who carry around an enormous weight of guilt, right? And we ourselves may sometimes be victims of this particular malady. And um, Freud says that the superego can get sick. It can become just so absolutely wild and self-denigratory in its judgments that it freezes us and makes us utterly miserable. The argument of the book is that cultures, too, can sometimes become sick with the superego. And I think that right now we live in a culture of extensive, extraordinary internet guided judgment, um, punitive judgment. And I think it's important to understand the terms of that judgment and to come to grips with it and to see what we can do about being freer uh, of it. Um, it has other aspects too, you know, it talks about not just the super ego written in our culture, but the angry, what we might call id-ridden, those who are inflamed by the process of being in part by being judged and being denigrated by the well-educated, well-taught. So it plays on that dialectic between um, superego and id. I'm surprised that I'm using Freudian terminology at a time when Freud is, let us say, slightly unpopular, but I just found it the most illuminating vocabulary I had on hand in order to figure out what was going on out in the world. And maybe when this book comes out and I've actually figured out everything that's in it or pretty much, (laughs)
0: you and I can get together and talk again. It sounds good. I look forward to it. And I I do look forward to reading the book. Uh, Mark Edmondson, thank you so much for joining the New Books in Literary Studies channel. I have really enjoyed hearing about your book, Song of Ourselves, Walt Whitman, and the Fight for Democracy. Please take care.
1: Great, well, thank you, John, it's been a pleasure. Always a pleasure to talk about Whitman, such a good student.